Amen. For our promise today, turn to uh, Psalm 101. This was a, uh, a promise that we had earlier in the week, I believe, in our uh, faith checkbook. And uh, Psalm 101, and uh, of course the whole psalm really is dealing with uh, how David uh, will accept those who are obedient to the word of God. He says his eye is on the faithful of the land. Uh, look in verse uh, verse 6. It says, Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. How do we get God's presence in our lives? And how do we uh, er, uh, earn the privilege in one sense of uh, serving God? Well, it's by obedience. Uh, obedience, a lot of misunderstanding about this today. Uh, let's suppose I'm a pastor and how do I know which mission board to support or maybe which college to recommend to my students or what, uh, maybe what man or evangelist I'd have come and speak in my pulpit? How do I determine that? You know, there is a scriptural basis for determining, determining who you fellowship with and cooperate with and who you endorse and who you accept. A lot of people say, well, if a man is a Christian, I can have him in my pulpit or I can give him support as a missionary. Or if a man is right on the fundamentals of the faith, well, I, and you know, if he believes in the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and salvation by faith alone and so on, then I can have him in my pulpit or I can support his uh, organization. That, that's not biblical. A man can be saved, he can be right on the fundamentals, but I still might not be scripturally allowed to have him in my pulpit and cooperate with him. <laughs> now that sounds strange, but what is the basis for my, that's saying uh, there's a, a, a um, oh, let's say a, a mission board. What determines whether or not I can uh, have that, uh, maybe some representative from that mission board come in and then agree to give him support and that board support. What would be the criteria? What is the Bible basis for rejecting or accepting a man in that sense? <laughs> it's not doctrine. It's not the fact that he's regenerate. I heard one uh, man say very foolishly, he said, any friend of God is a friend of mine. Well, if he's a friend of God in the proper sense, then I, I'll accept that. But uh, they all profess to be friends of God, don't they? <laughs> what man's going to come and say, I'm not a friend of God? What is the criteria? According to that basis that I, on the basis that I just read here. Mine eye shall be upon who? The faithful in the land. Obedience is the basis of fellowship. I can't support a mission board. I can't support a man. can't support a college where that college is, is, is practicing unbiblical principles. If they're having somebody that they shouldn't be having, they're practicing unbiblical principles, aren't they? <laughs> I hope I'm making some sense here. But obedience is the basis of fellowship, acceptance, of uh, endorsing somebody, of cooperating with somebody. They've got to be obedient to the Word of God. Let's, let's suppose you find out that, uh, oh, what would be a good example here, uh, that I'm a uh, that I that I that I'm a drinker, 
I profess to be a, a Bible teacher and go to a good independent fundamental Baptist church, but you find out that I'm, uh, uh, that I'm drinking, that I, I drink privately and secretly and able to keep that uh, secret. You can't have fellowship with me, can you? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have what? Then we have fellowship. Obedience, uh, turn to Psalm, while we're in the Psalms, turn over to Psalm 119. Didn't mean to take this long, but it's kind of an important subject, I think. Turn to Psalm 119, come down to verse 63. It says, I am a companion of all them that what? That fear thee, and then what else does it say? That keep thy precepts. You see how obedience is the basis of fellowship and the, the basis of cooperating and supporting a man or a ministry? If there's something, if that ministry, suppose that ministry constantly have people come in and speak that are, uh, that are uh, not practicing the right kind of fellowship and cooperating with people who are disobedient to the Word of God. If I cooperate with people that are disobedient to the Word of God, what does that make me? Makes me disobedient, doesn't it? <laughs> I hope you see where I'm coming from here. But anyhow, I just thought that was a, that's a great emphasis there. David says, my eyes are upon the faithful of the land. Those that are obedient, those that are in the place spiritually that they ought to be, th these are the ones that I'll put on my staff in the sense of what David is saying. These are the ones that will serve me. And uh, well, anyhow, does everybody have a sheet Good morning. Oh, you got one? Okay. Okay. Anybody else need everybody get one of these? Okay. We've been looking now at Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Remember now the most important Old Testament passages on the New Covenant. What is the primary New Covenant passage in the Old Testament? Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 through 34. And then the other important passage on the new covenant in the Old Testament is here in Ezekiel uh, chapter 36. Those two chapters are the most important chapters in all the word of God on the what is the new covenant. All right, now look at your handout that I've given you. This uh, says that these are the four basic covenants of the Bible. And if you look at these four covenants in this diagram that I have here, this is a glimpse of what the Bible is all about. Uh, this is, you might say this is the skeleton of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament that you see here. The Abrahamic covenant was the single most important event in the Old Testament. Uh, the New Covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. As you can see here, all these covenants now come out of the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant, and then the, uh, uh, what we call the, uh, sea, uh, the Davidic covenant, the seed covenant. David uh, will be the in line, and then who will be the ultimate king that comes from the seed of David in the millennium? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the Abrahamic covenant now is, predict is predicting, the, of course, the land covenant, 
because the Palestinian covenant, that's not really the best word for that. I don't know that I like that term. Anybody remember how Israel got the name Palestine? <laughs> you remember the Romans came in in 135 AD and uh, burned, destroyed about a thousand cities in Israel and uh, killed probably over half a million Jews. This is in 135 AD after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And uh, they devastated the land. And then uh, to show their contempt for Israel, they named them Palestine, named, named the country Palestine. That word is derived from the word Philistines. And Rome is saying, in effect, we Philistines have conquered Israel. We've your enemies have destroyed you. We destroyed your temple earlier. And now we're going to destroy the land. And we're going to drive the Jews out of the land. And now we're going to make it desolate. We're going to destroy the crops and the fields. Uh, Mark Twain, uh, in the, back in the middle of the 19th century, took a trip through Israel, and he, the thing that struck him was how devastated the land was. <laughs> uh, it, was not, uh, it was dry and desert, but the land was uh, destructive, uh, or the land was destroyed. It was unproductive. The Romans uh, sowed the fields with salt and so on, so they couldn't grow crops. Uh, Rome um, literally, <laughs> in one sense, destroyed Israel. But there always remained a little handful, a little remnant of Jews that lived in, in what they came to call Palestine. But they, the Romans called it Palestine in contempt of Israel. And so sometimes the, the students of the scriptures call it the Palestinian covenant. I just like to call it the land covenant. Uh, God promised, remember that uh, ceremony, that very unusual, strange ceremony that God uh, conducted there where he had uh, Abraham go out and find uh, three kinds of animals, cut them in half. And then, uh, then he had uh, a pigeon and a turtle dove, didn't cut the birds in half. But he put Abraham to sleep. You remember all this? And then God passed alone between the halves of the animals. And that uh, was uh, basically a ceremony. And so those animals divided and cut apart so that they would die and bleed. And so when those animals, uh, the blood of those animals was uh, sort of ratified the covenant. To ratify means to make legally binding. So when God passed between the pieces of those animals, he was telling Abraham, remember the whole thing was about uh, Abraham said, now Lord, prove to me you're going to let me have the land. That was all about the land. And God says, well, here's the way I'll prove to you and promise to you that you'll have the land. Go out. Get these three animals, divide them, cut them in half, shed their blood, and the pigeon and the turtle dove, there'd be eight pieces all together. Remember, he put Abraham to sleep. Abraham, in one sense, had nothing to do with the covenant. He put him to sleep. <laughs> do you remember this? And then God by himself passed between those animals that had been divided, that were bloody, and the blood had been shed. And so God was, a, that was a sort of one sense ratifying and making legally binding that promise that God made to Abraham. The blood, was basically it's saying in effect, if I don't keep my promise, I want to die and my blood be shed as the penalty and the punishment for failing to keep my promise. That's what those covenants were all about. May, if I don't keep my end of the agreement or the promise or the bargain, and uh, I want my life to be destroyed and my blood shed. So do you see how the blood made the, uh, this agreement, this treaty, legally binding? 
All right, you're going to see this when Christ goes to Calvary and dies on the cross. He's going to ratify the covenant with his blood. That cup represents his blood. That blood represents his promise to keep the testament, to keep the promise. All right. Hope I'm making sense here. Now look at your handout. The four basic covenants of the Bible. The basic covenant now is the uh, Abrahamic covenant. And we saw the basic primary passage in Genesis uh, 12, verses 1 through 3. And in that chapter, in that passage, rather, in Genesis 12, you see these three basic elements. The blessing. The blessing is the gospel. God was promising Abraham that he would have the gospel, that his descendants would provide the gospel, provide the Messiah, the Savior, who would die on Calvary for sinners. It was the promise of redemption, that all the nations of the world will have redemption made available to them, if they would so accept it, of course, if they by faith would put their uh, trust in the Savior. All right? And then the, so the blessing has to do with the, the, uh, with the gospel, uh, the promise of the Messiah, basically. Then the seed, that's the promise of the Messiah. David's seed would be Christ, who would sit on the throne, who would provide redemption. And then the land is the third part of that. God promised Abraham uh, in that ritual there in Genesis 15, he was ratifying that covenant, that, ra- that promise to Abraham. If uh, I'm David, uh, God was in one sense swearing on his life. May I die. What's the possibility of God dying? <laughs> no, uh, no, uh, Abraham, the promise is secure. Uh, the, uh, that land that I, that the, the promise, the fact that what I'm showing you is I'm promising on my life that you'll re- inherit that land. You see the folly of these people who teach us replacement theology? God, uh, that the land is not going to be uh, is going to be given anymore. That land is a type of a spiritual victory. It really has nothing to do with the physical land or the physical nation. It's all spiritual. Let's allegorize it and let's uh, make it a type or make it a figure. But don't don't look at the don't consider the land to be something literal that God's going to give to these ancient people. Uh, Israel apostatized. She disobeyed God. She lost her privileges. So all those privileges that God had promised to Israel now are nullified. And uh, so all these promises will go to the church. Well, if you can eliminate the land promise, how about the promise of the seed of the Messiah? You can eliminate that too, can't you? Why would you arbitrarily pick and choose what part of that Abrahamic covenant you think can be kept? If you deny one part of it, what's the rationale for providing any of the other parts of it, right? (laughs) Am I making sense here? (laughs) Okay. All right. So uh, there you see the promise. See, this Abrahamic covenant covers the entire Bible. The Old and the New Testament. That's why the Abrahamic covenant was the single most important event in the Old Testament. It's a good overview of what all, uh, it's, it tells us, uh, the basic, lays the basic foundation for God's entire program for Israel, uh, for the nations, and for redemption. It's a good overview of what the Bible is all about right here. Do you see why the Abrahamic covenant is the single most important event in the Old Testament? Because it lays the foundation for everything else in the Word of God. Say. All right. It was some, one theologian called it the cornerstone of premillennialism. If God is physically going to uh, uh, give the land to Israel and dwell with Israel in the land during the millennium, then... Uh, Premillennialism is, uh, is certainly the logical extension of that uh, idea, is it not? 
So some see the cornerstone of uh, premillennialism, and I think pre-tribulational premillennialism is what the Bible what the Bible teaches. The church is going to be raptured out before the tribulation. The church will go pre before the tribulation. We won't have to go through the tribulation. Uh, thank the Lord. How anybody can study that tribulation period and not try to win their lost loved ones to the Lord is beyond me. <laughs> I certainly don't want to go through that. Do you? hear the pastor last week talking about those uh, terrible monsters that come out of the uh, abyss of hell and sting men and torture men for five months. I, I, I can't bear the thought of my loved ones going through that kind of thing. Can you? Let's, let's get them saved. I can't bear the thought of being in heaven without my loved ones. But uh, so uh, not, to me, there's no greater incentive than to see this doctrine of hell and the doctrine of the tribulation try to get people saved. All right. So anyhow, that's, uh, that's kind of an overview. If you look at your handouts, you can see how these things are fulfilled over in the New Testament. Now, what did Abraham, uh, we say that Abraham was given the gospel. God was promising Abraham uh, the gospel through his descendants, through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, what did Abraham understand about that? Turn over quickly. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I want to finish up Ezekiel today. But uh, this is so important. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. If there's any debate about the gospel, how you get saved, take uh, people to, to Galatians 3 or, and Galatians 4, both either one of those chapters. There's no clearer teaching in the Bible that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Any attempt to add works to faith destroys faith. Uh, you can't get, baptism is not a part of the gospel. Uh, Going to church is not a part of the gospel. Now, I think you ought to get baptized. I think you ought to go to church. But these things are not the gospel. The gospel is when you put your faith, you see yourself as a sinner and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as the Savior from sin. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. Don't add anything to that. The Catholic Church will say you're saved by faith. But, then they, but when you say the word alone, that destroys Roman Catholic theology. <laughs> that destroys the Roman Catholic system. Roman Catholics say, will say you're saved by faith plus works. And grace is a thing that the more good works you do, the more grace God gives you in one sense. No, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And let's just uh, stick to Galatians 3. Maybe, maybe just take that. <laughs> Uh, maybe John 3, 16, Galatians 3. Nowhere in the Word of God is it uh, more clearly taught that you're saved by faith alone. Uh, quickly, though, look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. We're talking about Abraham now. What did Abraham, when God promised him the, uh, the blessing, what did that blessing involve? What did Abraham understand by that? 3. And come down to about uh, verse 8, Galatians 3, verse 8. It's in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith. The scripture, foreseeing, the Old Testament, that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto who? Who, was, uh, rece who received the good news of the gospel? <laughs> Abraham. Those Old Testament saints knew much more about the Messiah than what we assume, did they not? When Abraham got saved, he put his faith in the coming Messiah. 
saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. In Jesus Christ, Abraham's descendant, would all nations be blessed. They'd all be blessed by the opportunity to get saved by receiving the gospel. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse it is written. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you're going to get saved by law, you better keep every single one. You better not be driving over a mile to church on the, on, on the, if you have church on the Sabbath day. Better not be out there uh, getting, uh, buying gas to put in your stove to, fix, uh, to cook a meal. <laughs> uh, you better not, uh, what, uh, you know, the, uh, all these rules and regulations, you better watch what you eat. Uh, you better, uh, you know, better keep those dietary laws, right? You can't pick and choose what parts of the law you're going to keep. You got to keep it all. That's what the word of what is, what's being said, what the word of God is saying here in verse 10. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God it is evident for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not a faith, but the man that doeth them shall live by them. See, the law, and fa- the law and faith are totally opposite. You can't have both. It's either one or the other. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Talking about that blessing now in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Remember Jeremiah, Joel, uh, this passage here in Ezekiel, it's all promising the Holy Spirit, right? I will pour my Spirit out on you. That's what it's saying here. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth unto. The, unto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promise made, the, the testament, the covenant, the agreement. He saith not, and to seeds, he didn't promise Abraham uh, the Redeemer would be many seeds, no, just one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, he saith not, and to seeds as, to, as of many, but as of one, and to the seed which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant, the contract, the agreement that God made with Abraham was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after he cannot disannul, that you make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, there's no more promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. All right, so there we see that's basically what it's talking about there in the, in the, in the, uh, in the covenant, in the, in the Abrahamic covenant. All right. And then if you look at these New Testament passages, you can see these are places, locations where these, the New Covenant and the Davidic Covenant and the Palestinian Covenant are fulfilled over in the New Testament. Now, to whom was the New Testament given? I'm sorry, the New Covenant. To what people was the New, Te- New Covenant given? Remember, it was given to Israel alone. And yet, if you go and look, if you start reading in the New Testament, we see the church enjoying many of those spiritual blessings, don't they? How did they get those spiritual blessings? Well, we don't know. God just gave it to them. (laughs) So we're really sharing some of the blessings of the New Covenant, but the New Covenant was promised to Israel alone. And that New Covenant will find its uh, complete fulfillment uh, in the millennium, the land. 
God promised Abraham the land there in that very strange ceremony that went on where they cut the animals to pieces. Abraham asked, Lord, now how, what, what proof are you going to give me that I'm going to inherit this land? And so God gave him that to a wonderful promise, that wonderful testimony. God, in one sense, was sort of swearing upon his own life in that, in that ceremony. All right. Now let's come over to the book of Ezekiel. Do I have any questions about anything? Okay, let's come to Ezekiel. Now last week we looked at this passage of the New Testament. In Ezekiel 36 now, in Ezekiel 36, you get the promise of Israel's restoration. We won't take the time to go through it, but in there it promises that God will repopulate the land. And then the, uh, the suggestion there is that Israel is, is going to be is desolate. Back in the 19th century, Israel, the land was very desolate. It wasn't fit for agricultural. It was dry. Uh, it was uh, very, uh, very few people in the land, just like the Word of God describes it. But then Ezekiel 36 he'll, says that God will repopulate the land of Israel. Uh, that he'll restore the land and make it basically agriculturally abundant and so on. Well, has that happened? <laughs> Israel is probably the, among the wealthiest nations in the world. Fabulously wealthy. All kinds of minerals and, of course, uh, the oil shale that we talked about before that was discovered about uh, 10, 12 years ago. Israel is very wealthy. And they're very uh, productive agriculturally and, and, and the technology. Israel's making some of the greatest technological advances in the world. They're very advanced technologically and very innovative and really ahead of the curve, uh, really probably ahead of the rest of the world in this technological development and so on. Well, just like uh, Ezekiel 36 promised, Israel has been made a very rich, productive land again. And then over in chapter 37... Again, we see the, there's two visions of restoration in chapter 37. You had this vision of the dry bones. You ever hear the old, uh, the old song about the, the bones connected and so on? Well, basically what that is, that's a, a vision that God gives to Ezekiel of how God is going to take this dead, dry land and uh, breathe life into it. And that's going to happen in the millennium. Israel is back today in unbelief. But in that uh, vision of the dry bones in the desert, uh, where God brings these bones together, brings life into them, that's a picture of Israel uh, being restored to life once again. Well, Israel's back in the land. She's been there about 75 years. And those dry bones have been brought together and, uh, and so on. Israel, in one sense, has been restored, but she hasn't, been, she hasn't experienced a new covenant yet. That'll take place in the millennium where the Holy Spirit is poured out on Israel. Uh, when the Lord comes back at the second coming, those that survive, all Israel will be saved when the Lord comes back at the second coming. They'll look on him whom they have pierced and they'll mourn. And as a nation, uh, of course, it's all individuals, but the word of God says his spirit will be poured out and all Israel will be saved. Now, Israel's not all saved right now. They're in, back in the land of unbelief. Most of those Jews that restored the land in the late 19th century, many of them were atheists and infidels. They called it the Zionist movement. But uh, at the second coming of the Lord, the, the, those will, all Israel will be saved. 
And so you see this vision in chapter 37 of the dry bones, and you see another vision in chapter 7 of the two sticks. And Ezekiel sees a vision of two sticks, and he's told to take these two sticks and write on them and bring them together and so on. And basically that's a vision of saying that Israel, the northern kingdom, will be united with Judah, the southern kingdom. So Israel will be united. Remember now they've been divided, had been divided. Israel was carried away. The northern kingdom was carried away by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was destroyed and carried away by the Babylonians. So the kingdoms have been, Israel has been divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That vision of the two sticks will show how Judah and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom Judah and the southern kingdom the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom, uh, kingdom of Judah, will be united together again. So in the millennium, we, of course, we see uh, all the, the nations t- as one together. But uh, many have not, uh, uh, in the millennium, then the uh, country will be united, and they'll all be believers. The only ones that go into the millennium now are safe people, regenerate people. No unregenerate people will be allowed into the millennium. But in the millennium, Israel will be united, uh, David, King David will probably be on the throne in Jerusalem under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will be the king. And it seems to suggest that David will, will sort of be a, a co-regent uh, under Christ. And Christ will rule the world, uh, will rule the nations uh, from Jerusalem uh, during the millennium. Okay, so that's kind of where we are. Then we come to chapter 38 and 39. God is giving Israel great hope, wonderful hope. They'll be restored. But then he's going to stop and basically say, look, however, until that time, Israel will suffer. She'll be persecuted. She'll be abused. There'll be wars in the land. And so going from this wonderful vision of restoration, we see a a vision, or not a vision, but a, a foretelling, a prophecy of the invasion of Israel by her enemies. So in 38 and 39, we see the battle of what's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. This is probably the name of a, probably a ruler or a leader of some kind. And then Magog seems to be the land. And uh, so that's kind of the, the context of this, all right? Let's look at 38 first, okay? In chapter 38, verses just 1 through 6, we're talking about now this battle of Gog and Magog. It says, Also thou, son of man, prophesy unto the mountains of Israel, and say, Ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because the enemy has said against you, Aha, even the ancient high places are ours in possession. It's talking about the invasion now. And why are these nations going to invade Israel? They want Israel's wealth. That's why uh, Brother Edgar Fagali, by the way, I meant to pray for him this morning. Uh, Brother Edgar Fagali, he is a missionary to the Arabs. He's headquartered in Iraq and, uh, and so on and all through the Middle East. And he's just established a radio, one of the most important radio stations in the Middle East that goes all the way over into Iran from Iraq, from Baghdad. And uh, praise the Lord that uh, that radio is about to go into uh, operation. It's also building a, a very strong, uh, a, building a Christian school in, uh, in uh, Baghdad. 
and they, they seem to be very cooperative with him there. So let's pray for Edgar, for his radio station, and for his Christian school. He needs a little bit more financial support and so on before he can, and some, I think it's some more permits or something before he can build it. But he, felt, he feels it looks very good for him. Let's, remember, let's stop and pray for Edgar now. Our Father God, we're thankful for your precious love and your goodness to us and the wonderful privilege, Father, of, just, of serving thee. I remember Edgar today, give him liberty, give him power, bless him, give him wisdom and good judgment. Uh, build a hedge of spiritual protection about him. Father, we pray you might move on the hearts of these people in power, the Lord, that they might be cooperative and that they might uh, be able to give him the help that he needs. And we just commit this work into your hands. And uh, we just pray that uh, this uh, wonderful school might go into effect and uh, this uh, wonderful radio station will see a tremendous harvest of souls. We commit these things into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So uh, the, uh, the Battle of Gog uh, and Magog, we're seeing now they're invading Israel and their, their, their motive, their primary motive seems to be they want the wealth of Israel. And uh, as I was getting ready to say before I interrupted myself, uh, many see uh, Russia is bleeding itself white in the Ukrainian war. And uh, they've killed like 30 some thousand Russian soldiers. But Russia is just bleeding itself white economically. And about to bankrupt itself. And what all is going to happen there, I don't know. But many, uh, I know Edgar himself feels that this may be a great occasion uh, for the Russians to want to invade Israel to, to, to regain their wealth, to get the wealth of Israel because of their, we don't know. Now, one of the great questions, when is this battle of Gog and Magog going to take place? This is going to be the battle now that we're talking about here in Ezekiel 38. Russia is going to seemingly unify many of the Muslim nations and then invade Israel. That's what this, uh, this battle of Gog and Magog is about. And uh, when is it going to occur? That's a good question. I used to think that it might occur before the rapture, but what would be the main problem of the battle of Gog and Magog occurring before the rapture takes place? Well, Dr. Walford pointed this out and really changed my mind on this. He made the point, he said that if the battle of Gog and Magog took place before the rapture, that it would destroy the eminency of the rapture. See, if we, if we knew Russia invaded with the Muslim nations and God destroyed them, then we knew the rapture's coming very quickly, right? There should be nothing in the word of God that destroys the eminency of the rapture. We don't know when the rapture is going to take place. The word of God doesn't give us any signs about them taking place. The only sign would be Israel in the land for 75 years, but she's been there for 75 years then. I don't know when the rapture is going to take place to you. So uh, anyhow, this is what's, uh, what's going on here. In verse, therefore, ye mountains of, uh, uh, verse three, therefore prophesy and say, thus saith the Lord, behold, they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side that ye might be, uh, be a possession unto the residue of the heathen. And ye are taken up in the lips of talkers and are in the infamy of the people. And so the, this goes on to describe now how Russia, if you look at these lands, there's a great debate among these theologians about which nations are going to invade. Let's just say that the word of God talks about the, uh, the enemy coming from the far north, and it seems to describe uh, those, uh, those uh, provinces, those countries that uh, are out of a part of the old former Soviet Union. 
uh, and so on. So uh, we know that Iran will be a part of the invasion. We know that Put, Libna, uh, Libya it seems to suggest very strongly that Turkey will be involved. And uh, uh, so we don't know exactly what all these, which of these nations, but we know that seemingly it's these Muslim nations. And it's fascinating today how these Muslim nations are under the influence of Russia. How Russia is helping Iran, these others, build their nuclear facilities, uh, selling them arms and so on. Been uh, very close collaboration between Russia and these Muslim nations. So you can see how very quickly after the rapture, uh, this invasion, I think, is going to take place. Uh, most of these students of prophecy think that the battle of Gog and Magog would take place near the, about the middle of the tribulation, shortly before Antichrist uh, breaks his treaty with the Jews. Uh, I tend to think that the uh, battle of Gog and Magog may take place shortly after the signing of the treaty. Remember, the signing of the treaty marks the beginning of the tribulation period. So I think uh, Russia, uh, uh, Gog and Magog, that battle I think will take place shortly after the signing of the treaty. The Antichrist now signing a peace treaty with Israel, right? And Israel is going to uh, be deceived in the signing this peace treaty, thinking there's going to be, they'll be secure, uh, that, they, that they now have protection of a, of a very powerful politi uh, political leader, very powerful political confederacy perhaps, and so they sort of let their arms down. Then I think uh, very quickly after that signing, of course, we, you can't depend on these nations to, 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 defend their, to keep their treaties right, keep their promises. So I think immediately or very closely after the signing, Gog and Magog, uh, the Russia and the Muslim nations will invade Israel. And the reason I think that because it's, I think it's going to be very hard for the, for the Jews to build their... Uh, temple on the Temple Mount. Why would it be very difficult for the Jews to build their temple on the Temple Mount today? Or even shortly after the signing of the treaty. Who's already got a temple there in one sense? The Muslims. And uh, they, they, uh, they think that uh, to, to even tolerate Israel is, abomina is an abomination. That Allah is very displeased with the presence of Israel. And to allow Israel on that Temple Mount would be an abomination to Allah. And so I think uh, the, uh, the Islam is going to be destroyed in one sense. Their power is going to be broken. And so that the Temple Mount uh, will be, uh, will, the, dome will, uh, the Dome of the Rock of Islam will be removed. And Israel can build her temple there. And that's just my theory for what it's worth. Not worth much, probably. But that's what it is. All right. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be the scenario. All right. And so when the, they will invade and God is miraculously now going to destroy this army. There's going to be earthquakes and hailstones. God's going to destroy this, uh, these invaders. They'll turn against each other. And uh, the carnage will be so great, it'll take seven months just to bury this, these, this army of Gog and Magog. Seven months to bury the bones. And so they'll be able to burn the, they'll be able to burn the weapons for seven years. Now, to burn something sounds to me like that would be made, those weapons would be made of wood, don't you? Spears, bows, arrows, things like that. Have you ever tried to, to burn a piece of metal? Like a, a missile or whatever? Uh, I think by the time of the tribulation, because of the earthquakes, and other, uh, uh, who knows what's going to happen to uh, all these refineries and so on. You can see the tremendous problem it causes when there's no uh, petroleum. 
So uh, who knows? We'll find out someday. Fortunately, gladly, I don't think I'm going to be here. I'll be up in, maybe up in heaven watching all this, right? Amen? <laughs> okay. So anyhow, Gog is going to be defeated. Then we'll see God's terrible judgment on them. God's going to call the animals from around the world, and they'll be able to feed on the, on the, the flesh of these defeated armies and so on. And so, uh, but they'll be able, they'll burn the weapons for uh, seven years and it'll take them uh, seven months to bury the bodies. So God's going to bring terrible, terrible judgment on this invasion by Russia and the Muslim nations on, on Israel. So that's what uh, 38 and 39 is all about. This invasion by Gog and Magog. And at the end of the millennium, there'll be another battle of Gog and Magog, but it's certainly a different battle. And Satan will unite everybody during the millennium who secretly oppose God and they'll try to defeat God and um, God will uh, destroy them with his breath. God destroys this army at the end of the millennium differently than he destroys the battle of uh, the invasion during the tribulation. So these are two different battles, God, two, but they're both called Gog and Magog. But if you look at the context and the events and things that occur, too many different things happen in this event to, uh, that uh, makes it... Uh, uh, dissimilar to the one that to, to the invasion that took place during the tribulation. So they're very clearly two different battles. All right, well, that'd be a good place to stop.